Okay, well, we're continuing on through the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, let's begin now in a word of prayer. Father, again, we thank you that we can come to your word and understand a lot of things that perhaps we need to be corrected on. Uh, we've, we've been told that uh, by, by many people that we don't need to worry about doing good works or following the law anymore because Christ has come and he's fulfilled the law and therefore we don't have anything to do with it anymore. Well, as we approach this subject today, I, I pray that you give us clarity of mind to understand that that is a completely false notion and that in fact the law is good and we are to seek and do what is good and right in the world and I pray that we understand who we are as your priests as we go through this passage and really uh, come to terms with what you set out for your people, how you want them to live, and uh, in accordance with, with their repentance. And so we thank you, Lord. We ask that these things glorify you in all that we say and do. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's go ahead and read the passage. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, now uh, verses uh, 13 and 14 are very interesting because they come on the heels, of course, of the Beatitudes that we talked about last week. And what you see here is uh, something that I think a lot of people miss. So he begins with this analogy of salt. It says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, there's a lot of discussion on what the salt is. Uh, the word for uh, losing its taste or becoming tasteless is actually the word for being foolish. Uh, if the salt has become foolish, which doesn't really, really make a whole lot of sense, you can kind of see the, the sense of tastelessness with foolishness. But of course, that word creates an inclusio with the end of the sermon, which is going to be uh, about the fool who builds on the sand. And so in a way, you can kind of see the connection. But of course, uh, the, the tastelessness of the fool here is talking about salt. Well, many people then think, some commentators think that the, the salt is about wisdom. And I think that's a part of it. But I think more so, salt is often used in sacrifices. Remember, Matthew is a very Jewish gospel. This is a Jewish context. Salt would be, have been understood as something that is pleasing to God. When you salt your sacrifices, it's, you're almost preparing the meal for God. Um, and so you're putting salt on it so that it tastes good, it's pleasing to God. And so I think he's talking here about men being pleasing to God. And so being pleasing to God in what way? Well, we're going to see that through the rest of the sermon. We already kind of saw it a little bit in, in who we are in the, in the Beatitudes. But in terms of, of uh, who we are and, and what we're going to do from the inside out, it's being pleasing to God. So if you no longer are pleasing to God, what, what good are you? Uh, you, you don't have any use or anything. It's like salt that if it were to lose its taste and you just throw it out and it's good for nothing but you know to be trampled on by men. Um, so it's important. That's one side of a picture that I think is saying, and it's connected to the idea of the two greatest commandments, that 
The first greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with everything you've got, basically. And you're pleasing to God in that way. That you have a relationship with God. Um, that you are salty to God. And so this is often interpreted to mean that we're salty to people, but that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. It's actually salty to God. The next one, I think, is about how we relate to people. And I want you to notice then that this is going to be creating a picture of a priest, what a priest does in the world. Uh, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So, What is the other job of the priest? Well, one job of the priest is to appear before God, make petition before God as one who is pleasing to God. So he he functions as an intermediary. Well, the other function of the priest is to then represent God to the people. And how does a priest do that? Well, he represents God to the people here in Jesus' words, not by uh, performing a bunch of rituals and not by you know dressing a particular way and his nice you know, robes and lengthened tassels and phylacteries and all that sort of thing, but he represents God to the people by doing good works, and this is extremely important then that we understand this is talking about how you are a priest in the world now I think the Sermon on the Mount um, both here and then at the end are going to be addressing leaders in the church. They're going to be talking to the actual shepherds, the leaders, the pastors, the prophets, those people in the church who are leaders, because, of course, this conflict between Jews and Gentiles is going on is fed by these, these leaders, or at least this group of people who think that they're leaders, whatever it may be. And so he's addressing them that if you want to be a true leader in the church, you want to be a true priest— This is how you actually represent God uh, to the people. You do good works. And then you're also to be pleasing to God so that you can't, it can't be just some sort of show. It's got to be an inward thing. You've got to like secretly be uh, worshiping God. Later on, he's going to talk about people who externally worship God because they're quote unquote worship God because they're giving alms in the public and saying long prayers and chanting and all of that in public and announcing when they give and and whatnot. Um, He's going to say, no, go in, go in secretly and pray to God in that respect. And don't let your right hand know what your left is doing when you're giving and all that, that sort of thing. So you're a priest then when you are genuinely uh, in a right relationship with God where you are, are, are pleasing to God and, um, and you show that you represent God to the people by doing good works through your works. Now, I want you to notice, you might think that, well, Christ is contradicting himself because later he's going to say, don't you know, let your right hand know what you're doing and don't go out in the street corner But he's not talking about good works. Those are things later on that glorify men. That the people, oh, they're so religious. Look how religious they are with with all their ritual and practice and whatnot. Christ is saying here, that's not what you want to show before men. You want to show your good works before men so that they can glorify not you, because how did these wicked men suddenly turn and become good and do right in the world? Well, they would then glorify God, your Father, who is in heaven. You wouldn't get the glory. God would get the glory for that. That's what a real priest does. He does good works, not to get glory, not to get credit for himself, but so that people glorify God. And so first and foremost, I actually think this is talking about the covenant community. I don't necessarily think that wicked men are going to glorify God. So it's important that we understand that first and foremost, this is probably talking about elders, Uh, In the church, this is how elders are true priests in the church. They represent God when they are pleasing to God, and they represent God when they're actually doing genuine good works before the community. Well, uh, again, this is important because you've got a group of leaders here in Matthew who think that it's all about being honored by the community and what they wear uh, in terms of their uh, phylacteries and robes and tassels and all that sort of thing. 
They think that represents God. They think uh, saying long prayers and performing uh, 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 different like cleanliness rituals and rites with water and, you know, all that sort of thing. And you see this as we go through Matthew, that this is what they're concerned about. They're concerned about ritual. And if you ever read the Mishnah, for instance, the Mishnah really captures rabbinic teaching. And a lot of it is not really concerned about morality. A lot of it is concerned about ritual. Uh, make sure you do this and only make these, you know, step, step this far from your house on the Sabbath and no further. Or, or you know, it, it's just kind of like, wow. I mean, it, this is what, it's, what Christ is talking about when he's talking about them laying heavy burdens on the people. He's not talking about moral burdens. God lays moral burdens on his people. He's talking about the ridiculous amount of ritual that where people feel like they're almost like straitjacketed and they can't do anything because everything is like unclean to do. And you see this again as we go through Matthew. Um, Christ's disciples end up like picking weed and they eat it. And the Pharisees are like, whoa, they didn't wash their hands. And it's sort of like, so wait, you have people like committing all sorts of atrocities around you and you're worried about people washing their hands when they eat. Um, I mean, come on. And, and not even because they have a disease going on, not even for cleanliness and, and, and like, you know, because they don't know anything about germs or anything. It's really just because, well, God, God cares about the dirt on your hands because it can defile you in going in. So you need to be cleansed uh, from the outside. That's the opposite of what Christ argues here. You need to be pleasing to God and you need to be uh, doing good works before men. Forget the ritual is, is not necessarily something that pleases God. Well, we're, we're about to get into a section about the law, and I wanted to explain something about the law and, and really about Matthew in general that I think is extremely important as we interpret it. Many of you are going to pick up commentaries, especially if they're commentaries after the Reformation, um, because there is so much concern about uh, smacking against the Roman Catholic view of soteriology and all that. No one wants to put works as, as a part of any part of salvation, even sanctification. Now, the Reformers don't have a problem doing that, but you, you see this afterward, especially in America, where this sort of fundamentalism develops to where any sort of talk of works, people get really nervous. And I guarantee, like, I guarantee as we go through this and as I've been going through it, um, you may be getting a little bit nervous because of that tradition. It's really important to understand that this law that Christ is giving us, remember, he's ascending to the mountain, he's speaking as the new Moses, the true Moses. This is the right interpretation of the law. Um, there are two main interpretations of Matthew, and the most common one you're going to hear, and you hear from laymen and you hear from everyone, uh, again, in this sort of vein, is that what Christ says is really just to show us that we can't do it. So this law is not meant for us to do. It's just meant that, you know, it's to show us that we can't do it. And therefore, we need to have faith in Jesus. And then we're, because we're saved by grace through faith and not of ourselves, as Ephesians says, and so not of works. It's not of works. And so because it's not of works, we can't do this. And therefore, um, we don't really need to pay that much attention to it. Or it was for Jews in a different dispensation because it's law and we're in an age of grace. And so we need, don't need to worry about this and whatnot. Um, there are three uses of the law. And you know, they're in different order depending, depending if you're in Lutheran or, or uh, more uh, reformed circles. The first use of the law in uh, a reformed circle, I believe, I, I get them confused sometimes, is the law is used to push you to Christ. So in other words, the law exists not for you to perform it, but to bring you to Christ because you realize that you can't do it. So it's a very Galatians use of the law. And that, and that is the use of the law in terms of justification. And so we, we all who are Reformed believe this, that that's the use of the law for that. Many people interpret Matthew to be doing that. That it's just the first use of the law. It's just supposed to push you to Christ. So don't really worry about doing it. Just see how high God's standards are and that you cannot meet them for justification and therefore you need to have faith in Christ. 
Um, I have argued and will argue, and I'm, and I'm about to give you an argument from Matthew itself that I think seals the deal, that Matthew and Jesus here are talking about the third use of the law. That is, the third use of the law is what love of God and love of your fellow Christian looks like, um, and therefore are Christians to love God and love their fellow Christians? Yes. What does it look like doing the law? And so the third use of the law is actually a sanctifying use of the law. It's for those who are saved, as we talked about before, they're regenerated, they're the people of the Beatitudes, and now this is how they are to love. And that doing of the law is the fruit of true repentance, which is what Matthew is concerned about. He's concerned about the fruit. So all throughout, what does John the Baptist say? Uh, to the Pharisees, if, if you are the sons of Abraham, do the fruit that is consistent with repentance. Um, Christ later in the sermon is going to talk about you will know them by their fruit. A bad tree does not produce good fruit. A good tree does not produce bad fruit. Um, he's going to talk about how the, you know, God's going to plant the seeds in the soil. And, and in the good soil, the, the, the tree grows up and it bears much fruit, even a hundredfold. Uh, later on, he's going to tell the Jews that it, the, the kingdom of God is being taken away from you and given to a nation that bears the fruit of it. So a lot of fruit about, and the fruit is the good works that Jesus is talking about, that this is how we are to live. And so the law here is not the first use. It's, you can use it that way, but that's not Matthew's intent. It's not Christ's intent and with what he says. Now, how do we know that? How do we discern between the two? Because I'm sure many people are like, oh, no, 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 no. I, I would never interpret it that way. And it's, uh, that, that doesn't give me assurance or you know, whatever. And I actually, well, what gives you assurance is if you're bearing fruit. So, I mean, that's consistent with the Bible. Um, if you want to know for sure which one it is, Matthew provides evidence for what it is. He provides numerous judgment scenes throughout the book. So here's how we can tell if it's the first use of the law or the third. If it's the first use of the law, that is, it's just supposed to push us to a decision of faith in Christ. Well, then the judgment scenes should say that. The judgment scene should say, depart from me. You didn't believe in me. They should say, if you do not believe in me, you will perish. Uh, so your heavenly father will do to you if you do not believe in me. Uh, you did not believe in me, therefore depart into everlasting punishment. You believed in me, therefore inherit the kingdom your father has prepared for you. That's not what they say. They say things like, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only, only these people who do the will of the Father. Now, many people will take that out of context. They'll be like, oh, well, doing the will of the Father is believing. That's not the context. So he even explains it afterward. For many will come to me on that day saying, Lord, Lord. Notice they're Christians by profession. Lord, Lord. It's not a different dispensation. Lord, Lord, did we not uh, cast out demons in your name and perform any miracles in your name and, uh, and uh, um, prophesy in your name? And he will reply to them and say, depart from me. I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. In other words, you don't do the law. He'll say that if you don't forgive, neither will your father forgive you. Well, forgiving is doing something. Later on, I'll have a parable saying, you know, just like the wicked servant who doesn't forgive his brother, so your, your heavenly father will do to you until you pay up every cent. Why? Because you didn't do something. At the end of the Olivet Discourse, he'll talk about um, elders, pastors who beat their fellow servants and they get drunk. In other words, they indulge in the world. And he says to them that he's, he's going to cut them into pieces and it will assign them a place with the unbelievers. 
because of what he did. And then they find the, the, uh, you have other judgments in the parables and whatnot. There's not enough oil. And then the talents are not used the way that they're supposed to be used. Done. Something that's done. The, the oil being obedience, I'll argue later. And finally, the final judgment scene, the sheep and the goats, which is a judgment of the church. Because you saw me naked and you did not clothe me and you saw me hungry and you did not feed me. Therefore, you will go away to everlasting punishment. But the righteous will go away to everlasting life. And who are the righteous? Well, you saw me naked and you clothed me. You saw me hungry and you fed me. What you did showed who you are. Your identity was made known by what you did, whether you obeyed the law as it is interpreted by Christ, not the Pharisees. So it's very important to understand as we read Matthew, we, Matthew is arguing, Jesus is arguing uh, through Matthew, that ultimately Christians do the law. But it's not the law as we might think it. In other words, he, he's going to emphasize something about the law, and we'll talk about that now in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to annul the law or the prophets. I want you to notice what he says. He doesn't say law and prophets. Usually law and prophets means the entire Old Testament. He actually breaks it up and says law or prophets, meaning I didn't come to annul any part of it. So he's not just saying I didn't come to do away with the, you know, the overall purpose of the Old Testament. He's actually saying, I didn't come away to do any away with any part of the Old Testament, not in the intent of the Old Testament. So in other words, whatever the Old Testament was teaching you that you should do, and I'm going to argue morally, um, you should still be doing that. And your rabbis have misinterpreted it, and now I have to correct them. And that's what the sermon's going to be. It's going to be a lot of correction of rabbinical teaching, of Pharisaic teaching. The Pharisees are, are the uh, ones who hold on to the rabbinic teaching. They're the ones passing it on. So notice, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, to fill them up. Remember, that's Matthew's idea, to, to bring it to its fullest expression. So what is the fullest expression of the law? Well, it's not going to be ritual. Well, how do we know that? Well, as we go through... Matthew, there's going to be ritual that's brought up and Christ is going to be like, yeah, no, that's not that the ritual is teaching something moral and it's the morals that I'm concerned with. And so, you know, there there may be rituals about eating, but that's not really what defiles you. What defiles you is what comes from the inside. You have a, a bad nature and the nature needs to be changed. That's the problem. And so the concern is the in, from the inside out doing what's right and good. It's not from the outside in. You've misunderstood the law if you think that. Those rituals are pictures of what is moral, of what is holy. And so Christ isn't saying, yeah, I still, I don't want you to eat pork still. That's not the point. He's talking about, I don't want you, you need to realize I've, I've not come to abolish any sort of moral or just issue or whatever it may be, something that defines the character of God and the character of God's people morally, I've not come to abolish any of that. I actually want you to ramp it up. I want you to understand it, that it's from the root to the fruit that you are to be my people. And that's what the law is. There's nothing bad in the law. You're to do the good of the law and to understand it, to do even more than you thought the law was requiring you to do. So he's come to fill it up. Verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one yod, not one, do, uh, sorry, what, not one iota, not one yod will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. So every jot and tittle is, is the older translation, right? So a jot, a jot is, a, the yod is the smallest letter in the Hebrew. A tittle is the smallest part of a Hebrew letter. And he's saying, not even that, not, not even the smallest thing that you think might be in terms of uh, some sort of biblical principle that I do away with. This is completely foreign to modern evangelicalism that's like, oh yeah, that's Old Testament. 
completely foreign to fundamentalism that, that is, tends to be dispensational. It's like, oh yeah, that's, that's Old Testament. This neo-Marcionite idea that, well, Old Testament ethics, those aren't in, in effect anymore. Jesus is saying, no, that's not true. If you see something that in the New Testament um, hits against the old, it's only in ramping up the principle in the Old Testament that may do away with some Old Testament practices. But it's, it's not in doing away with those principles. It's actually fulfilling them, filling them up to their fullest expression. So you might see the New Testament contradict uh, the, the uh, I wouldn't say, it, 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 the Old Testament doesn't teach polygamy, but, but it, it tolerates it. The New Testament is not going to tolerate it anymore. Why? Because the principle of the two becoming one flesh in the Old Testament will now be brought to its fullest expression in Jesus, and those practices that were tolerated in the Old Testament will not be anymore. That's not abolishing the law. And then as we go through the rest of the sermon, he's going to say, you have heard, you have heard, you've heard it said, don't, don't commit murder. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. And people think, oh, well, see, he's, he's contradicting the law. And no, he doesn't say it is written. He's not talking about the scripture. He's talking about the way that the rabbis teach the law. They'll say, uh, you shall not commit murder, but then they'll limit it to just physical murder and crisis. But I say to you, that's not. That's not how to take it. That if you, even you're angry at your brother you've murdered and you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. And, and the rabbis would meet, well, as long as you're not like, you know, physically committing adultery and Christ's like, no, 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 no. Uh, don't commit adultery is the principle as well that you be faithful to your marriage so that you don't even lust after someone. You don't want someone else as your spouse. And you don't commit adultery. You don't commit adultery through uh, divorce, either by divorcing your wife or marrying someone who's divorced. Um, Oath taking and all that. I mean, he's just going to go through all those that the rabbis have distorted. You know, lo- love your friend and hate your enemy means to the rabbis it's okay, even within the context of the covenant community, to hate other believers. And Jesus is like, no, love your, those who are hostile to you. And that's what's going on. Remember the conflict in the covenant community. Love those Christians. You're not allowed to hate them. Fulfilling love your neighbor means they're your neighbor. They're in the covenant community, not just those who are your friends or speak well of you. And so it's very important to understand that this is the, the principles of the law that, that Jesus is saying are still in effect the Old Testament is not done away with. It's being fulfilled. It's being brought to its fullest expression. And that's what Jesus is doing. And if someone has taught you otherwise, you've been lied to. I mean, do you really think that God doesn't care anymore if you steal your neighbor's oxen? Even though that's his livelihood? I mean, obviously we're not using oxen today, but you steal his car. God doesn't care anymore. That's Old Testament. Uh, God doesn't care anymore if, if you, um, if you, uh, you know, whether you, you like uh, murder your neighbor or something. Now, some people would say, well, it's repeated in the New Testament. Okay, but there's morality that's not repeated in the New Testament. And yet it clearly is consistent with what we should be doing. Again, because the New Testament is not an abolishing of the old, any part of the old. It's a fulfillment of the old. So if you think that, you're wrong. And I want you to notice the warning that he gives. This is a severe warning, again, that is not very much understood. Therefore, verse 19 Whoever relaxes means to loose, loosen up, to make it a little bit more, ah, eh, you know, we, we won't really, we don't need to really observe that. We don't need, really need to like discipline over it. We're just going to let it go. Um, it's not that really that big of a deal. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, that is the one that you don't think is that big of a deal, uh, doesn't hold the high place of honor. That's really what least means, uh, something that is dishonored among you. And we'll, we'll see how that affects uh, uh, what Christ says here as well, by the way. Therefore, who, whoever loosens up one of these 
even the least of these commandments, that's the jot or the tittle, and teaches others to do the same. So he he relaxes it for himself. He teaches others that they can relax it as well. Uh, They don't need to actually like uh, discipline over it or anything of that nature. Teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want you to notice something here. What Jesus just said should terrify you. Because the way we normally read it is, well, you'll be least in the kingdom of heaven, but you'll be in the kingdom of heaven. So you're still getting like, you know, a broom closet or something. That's not what he's saying. Um, Least of these, as I just said, is talking about what is dishonored among the people. Sometimes, uh, you know, the least of these brethren of mine will talk about these brethren are dishonored among you, this group, but I don't dishonor them. They represent me. Here, it's the law that's being dishonored among them. So there's there's a least law. There's a law that's saying, ah, you know, maybe, maybe we just don't understand what that's saying. And well, we'll just relax it. We won't, we won't be too dogmatic about it. And well, you, you go ahead and practice that if you want. And I'll just practice what I want if I want. And yeah, you know, who really knows? And um, that that's a least commandment in your mind. You don't really need to, you're not honoring it. it it's least. Now, I want you to notice what Christ then does. He says that if you do that, you'll be considered least. And least does not mean you're still going to make it in the kingdom of heaven, though. Least actually means you are damned. Now, you want to know how I know that? Because he then qualifies it with the next verse. So in other words, you'll be called dishonored in the kingdom of heaven. Those in the kingdom of heaven will dishonor you. How are you dishonored? Well, you'll be cursed. You'll be cursed off into eternal punishment. How do we know that? Again, right here, for, there's the gar, Hebrew Greek, or the Greek word gar, for, what, why, why are you considered least? Why, why will you be dishonored in the kingdom of heaven? Because I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no way, it's emphatic, ume, in no way, never will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what it means to be least in the kingdom of heaven. You can be least among men, among the visible covenant community, and Christ honors you still. Um, You can be least among the world, and Christ will honor you still. But if you're least, according to the kingdom of God, a kingdom of heaven, in the reign of God, in the reign of heaven, you're least, you're dishonored, you're disqualified, you're not allowed in, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You are not going to enter into eternal life, but rather into eternal punishment. These are severe words. Remember, he's talking to Christian leaders who might teach these things. That's why he says, not only for themselves, but they teach other men to do it. Now, what should also alarm us, again, in in continuity with what we said about last week in, in terms of humility, is that every American Christian, and maybe every Christian in the West, thinks himself to be a teacher, So he actually is doing this. So now this can be directly applied to pretty much everyone who's opening their mouth and teaching. Whether you're teaching officially or teaching anyone, anything you say now, you relax something. So, well, you know, I'm not really, I I don't really think about murder that way, Jesus. So, I mean, I think it's okay to maybe have some problems with your brother and and, and you don't need to reconcile. And okay, well, you're going to go to hell. Well, I, I don't really, I don't really believe divorce is, you know, adultery, and I don't, I don't really believe marrying a divorced woman's adultery. You know, I, I have different views on that, and and there are other pastors who back me up, and and all that. It's like, okay, well, again, maybe you've never heard, and God will be gracious to you in your ignorance. But if you have heard, and you're still holding on to that, you're going to hell. That's not, that's not me. I'm not saying that. Jesus just said that. Because the law that he's talking about is the law as he interprets it and he's about to give it. Remember, he's Moses on the mountain. That's what he means by the law and the prophets here. What he's about to teach you, you cannot relax and annul. Because if you do, you are dishonored and your, your righteousness is that of the Pharisees and you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. 
And if you're unsure, maybe you should not be a teacher. Maybe be quiet then. Maybe you're not the expert you thought you were. What is the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? What are they doing? They're trying to get around the morality of the law. Everyone thinks that the Pharisees are those people, oh, you're Pharisaical because you're telling Christians that they should obey the law. And, and we're, we're all about grace. And the Pharisees aren't about grace at all. And it's like, have you read anything in the Bible at all? Have you read the Gospels? Uh, have you read anything in Second Temple Judaism? Jews believe in grace. They believe in God's favor upon them. They think they have favor because they're Jews. They're, they're God's chosen people. They believe in grace. In fact, they believe in grace so much that they're okay excusing themselves around the morality of the law. It's okay to devour widows' houses because you know what? We're washing up over here and we're saying our prayers really loud and we're giving our alms to the poor, you know, giving to our favorite charity and then we announce it to everybody. Look, look what a great people we are because we're giving uh, to the poor. Um, they replace, as is common throughout the Old Testament, as is common in the entire ancient world, as is common in our modern day, as we've talked about before, they replace worshiping God through the utmost love of God and love of neighbor in morality with ritual. Well, I know I'm a Christian and labels. We're the sons of Abraham. I'm a Christian. Why? Because that's the name I take upon myself. I'm a Christian. Why? Well, I go to church every Sunday and I sing really loud. Well, I'm a Christian because you know what? I show up for Christmas and I light those candles and I, and I pray those prayers to Mary. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, again, I bring up this analogy, but it's the perfect analogy for, uh, for modern Christianity in our day. And again, all false religion, all false Christianity um, to where you've got like in, in the Godfather, I think it's, I want to say it's the second one. Maybe it's the first one. Um, but he's baptizing his kid and he's doing this religious thing in the church. And all the while he's ordered all these hits on people. And so all these people are being murdered and he's the murderer of them, but he's baptizing his kids. So, you know, his kid's going to be saved and he's going to be saved because he's doing something good in the church. It's like, oh, well, yeah, you know, those Roman Catholics, they just, uh, they just don't get it. It's like, no, 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 no. You do the same thing. If you, think, if, if you think your identity as a Christian is because you're in a pew every Sunday, if you think your identity is proved because you're singing Christian songs and saying Christian prayers and that you give to that, that offering every week, now, again, Christ is going to say, like, look, some, some of these rituals you should do, like giving, giving to the priests your tithes, you should have done that and the other. You don't neglect one versus the other. So, yes, go to church every Sunday. Sing really loud. Uh, give in the offering. But don't do it to replace obeying Christ in what he says here, or he's not your Lord and you're not saved. Because Lord means master, owner. You actually obey him. That's why he says later on, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but don't do what I say? That's why many come to him on that day saying, Lord, Lord, did we do all this ministry? It's like, but you're immoral. You've replaced what I told you to do in worship of me in terms of what is right and good with these, with ministry, Oh, God, look at how much I sacrificed for ministry for you. Yeah, I didn't want that. Uh, you're going to hell. Because you basically murdered your brother. And you committed adultery on your wife. And you're a liar. And you didn't give to my people when they were in need. Not out of love for me and love for them. You became unsalty. And you didn't do good works before men so that they might glorify your father in heaven. Your ministry glorifies you, gives you a seat of honor. So what? You got what you got your reward in full like the Pharisees did. So I want you to notice here, this is first and foremost going out to disciples, to 
the elders, to um, those in church leadership. But I, I, I don't want you to miss the fact that if it's true of those who are sacrificing their lives to cast out demons and to prophesy and to, to perform miracles and do those things. In other words, if this harsh judgment is on those who are actually doing all the possible things that you would think would be pleasing to God, and yet they're not pleasing to God, how much less are you pleasing to God if you're disobeying Christ and you're not even doing ministry? So this is not just for leaders. It's hitting at the leaders first so that as an example, Christ can make an example of them and say, I'm going to damn even these people who actually did ministry their whole lives for me. That's what the Pharisees are doing. They're doing ministry. They're in the seat of Moses. They're teaching people God's word. And they're all going to hell. How much more will you go to hell? Because you're not even doing that. I mean, maybe the Pharisees, through teaching the word of God, maybe they'll save someone. Oh, that, that should give them brownie points. But it doesn't. They're even going to hell for that. But you're not even saving anyone. You're not even teaching anyone the word of God. You're not in ministry. And yet you're disobeying Christ. And yet claiming to be a Christian. How much more will you be damned? That's the point. The point isn't, isn't, well, this is just for pastors, so I don't really need to worry about it. I don't need to obey Jesus because only pastors need to obey Jesus. I mean, that's absurdity. No, we are to obey Christ. And the warning, and you know, this is not just uh, the first warning. He's going to warn throughout. Uh, so if you're going you're gonna to murder your brother in the way that Jesus says, then you're guilty enough to go to hell, to Gehenna. Uh, you're going to commit adultery, you're going to go to hell. You're going to be a liar. You're going to go to hell. You're not going to take care of the poor Christians in your midst. You're going to go to hell. Which he'll say later on, that'll be the final judgment. You're going to hell. Eternal punishment. Everlasting punishment. Somewhere along the way, we got the idea that grace means I don't actually obey Jesus or I don't have to. Rather than, as Titus says, grace teaches us to deny all ungodliness, to live for Christ in this world, to become like Christ. And salvation is not, I prayed a prayer, was justified, now I'm just going to wait until Jesus comes back and I guess I'll do a bunch of evil things or I won't do all the good he told me to do because I'm just waiting around for it. Rather than Jesus justified me, positionally made me, uh, righteous before God, gave me his righteousness so that I could actually then become righteous, so that I could actually then become like Jesus, conform to the image of God's son, and that that's what saved means. Not that I prayed a prayer, but that I entered into the kingdom of God, the rule of God, through the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus Christ, in order now to become a citizen of that kingdom, not only in word, but also in reality and deed. So that we become priests to the rest of the kingdom, those of us who are leaders, and then you who are not leaders in the church become priests to the world, because that was his goal, to make a nation, a kingdom of priests who are salt before God, pleasing to God, and do good works before men. They are mediators uh, of, of representing the people to God and representing God to the people. Salt and light. And instead, we replace the real religion of God that he has been screaming out the entire time throughout, from Genesis on, teaching the religion of the Pharisees instead of the religion of God, defaulting to this idea that I have a label on me that I'm Christian and therefore I am, that I do these rituals and therefore I'm a Christian because I, you know, I, I do these Christian rituals and customs and, and everybody who does them are Christian. And so we get to this and we're like, well, you know, it's kind of hard. That's what the Pharisees did. 
again, the Pharisees are not the people saying, yeah, do the law. They're, they're the Pharisees are, are, are telling people to do like rituals. They're doing the rituals of the law and they're doing the rituals that even they, they put upon the law, but they're relaxing the morality. The Pharisees actually thought the law, the morality of the law was hard. In fact, it was too hard. They were trying to find a more common religion that the, the average man can do. And well, the average man, he can, oh, he can obey rituals. He can like observe like how, how far does he go from his house on the Sabbath? And if he needs to go further, then you know, he can put one of his possessions down and then he gets to go a few more feet and then another possession, he can go a little further and then he can end up doing you know, what he wants on the Sabbath. And he can feel like he's, you know, he's, he's doing what's right. He's observing God and he's, he's respecting God in that way. And you can dedicate your whole wealth to the temple and feel like, man, I, you know, God's really pleased with me. And yet, what were they doing? They were neglecting, honoring their father and mother. They're, you're supposed to take care of your father and mother. But you took care of the temple and you think that God is pleased because you replaced his commandment with your ritual. We do the same things. We think, oh, well, you know what? I, I, I'm a Christian because I, 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 I pray every day and I have devotionals every day. And, you know, I listen to all these theology podcasts and, and, and I just, I, I do what Christians do. Well, what is it that Christians are to do? Well, they're to do this. Now, again, don't neglect the other. That's fine. But if you are going to neglect one, don't neglect this. Because he didn't say, you know what? You didn't listen to too many podcasts. Uh, therefore, depart from me. I never knew you. Uh, you know what? You, you didn't actually attend the right services on the right day at the right times and right light the right candles and say the right prayers and, and five Our Fathers and two Hail Marys and blah, blah, blah. Therefore, depart from me. He said you practice lawlessness. You didn't do the will of the Father as I described it in the sermon. And that may be the connection of the word fool to salt. Because at the end of the day, the fool does not do what the sermon says. He doesn't do what Jesus says. He builds his life on the sand, his own ideas. Or the ideas of his culture, his religious culture. Oh, you know what, Jesus? I didn't obey that because I had so many teachers tell me that I didn't need to. I had so many pastors tell me that I didn't need to listen to that. Or that, that that wasn't the right interpretation of you. So I, 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 did, I, I could actually do what I wanted there. I didn't realize all these other pastors were going to be your judges on Judgment Day. Who cares what they said? Jesus is saying this. The Lord of all. The King of kings. He's the King of the kingdom. He holds the keys to the door. I don't care what someone told you you could or could not do. I don't care what some commentator said. Listen to what Christ says. Don't muddy it. It's very clear. If you read it in context, it's very clear. Don't twist it out of context. Don't add a context to it. Don't try to get what you want as we go through this sermon. Let it say what it says in context. And we'll bring the context to bear. If there's context that changes something, yeah, we'll absolutely note that. But if it's context that's being brought in to change something that wouldn't be changed otherwise in its context, we're going to reject it. And if you are committed to Christ as Lord and you have the fear of God from what Christ says here of relaxing something that he said and teaching something different than what he said, that you might be damned then I pray that you'll reject it as well if it's something that's twisting his words. No, Christ did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, not one yod, not one tittle, not even the least commandments that you think is no big deal and you can just ignore because you're doing everything else anyway. We don't ignore 
any of it. We don't put aside any of it. We certainly don't teach other people they can do it. He's not saying, oh, yeah, you know what? If you're a pastor and you do this, that, you know, you're, you're not really qualified to be a pastor. No, he's saying you're not even a Christian. You're damned. This is not a game to play with these things. It's not something that you do a thesis on so that you can come up with something different than other people came up with. And now it's okay to do the stuff that Jesus said you you shouldn't be doing. This is the word of God from God incarnate himself on the mountain. And if that previous covenant that came through angels and came through a mere man on a mountain was absolutely kept by God where the judgments were poured out on his people to where his people were destroyed and laid low because they did not obey him from that mountain that I guarantee it is not some sort of empty threat on Jesus's part if you put aside what he has said or you twist it or you teach people that they can relax it or you think you can do otherwise. The judge will come in judgment and he will say, I never knew you, you who practice anomia, lawlessness. You don't pay attention to my word. <coughs> well, uh, I realize that's heavy. I, every time I've preached through Matthew, uh, this is the third time now. I think I've preached through the whole book, like just from start to finish. Uh, and every time, it's extremely heavy. I get that. This is the heavy. I think it's the heaviest book in the New Testament. I think it's the hardest book in the New Testament. Not to interpret. It's actually really easy. Uh, the context is clear. What's going on is clear. At least, I mean, to me, it's clear. And I hope I'll bring that out as we, we preach through it. What's hard is what it says. Because we're used to reading things like, oh, well, his, his uh, burden is easy. You know, his load is easy, his burden is light. And we think he's talking about morality. That Christ is saying, yeah, no, come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden. He's talking about them laboring in these rituals that are just absolutely, the people are buried in them. And he's saying, no, come to me. I'm not as concerned about the ritual. I just want to change you. I want to make you like myself so that you actually do what is right in the world. You become righteous. We read that as though, yeah, Jesus threw off all right. You don't need to worry about righteousness. Just believe in Jesus and do what you want. And this isn't just something that's unique to Matthew. We're going to see it again in Mark. And we'll see it again in Luke. And then in Acts. And we'll see it in, in even John, that you, you, know, you love your brother. And then in John's epistles. And we'll see it in Paul, who is quoted only, of course, out of context, to where, yeah, you're saved by grace and therefore it has nothing else to do with works? No, what does Ephesians uh, 2, 8, and 9 and 10 say? You're saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we have been created in Christ Jesus. The four there again, why, why, why all this? Well, because we've been created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of doing good works. Good works he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, live in them. And then the rest of Ephesians. It's about reconciliation to one another and doing good works to one another in the covenant community. Sounds like Matthew. Galatians, which you would think, oh, well, it's just faith, 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 not works in terms of justification. But don't be deceived. God's not mocked. What you reap is what you're going to sow. And every time Paul talks about the judgment, what does he say? It says, we all must stand before the judgment seat of Christ to be judged in accordance with our works. Not on the basis of works. We're being judged on the basis of whether we know Jesus Christ, whether he is actually our Lord and Savior. But the evidence of that is going to be the works. I mean, you can say that you're a mailman all day long, but if you've never delivered the mail... 
that it doesn't matter that you got the job as a mailman. You're not, you never actually did the job. And therefore, we're never really a mailman. Well, you can say all day long that you're a Christian, but if you don't actually have the fruit of being a Christian, you don't have the works of a Christian, that of someone who knows Jesus, then he's going to say, I never knew you. Upata, I never knew you. It's not that I knew you at some point. You didn't do good works and then I cut you off. No, the fact that you don't do good works, you don't do the law, you don't obey what I've said, shows that I never knew you as your Lord. You never had a relationship with me where I was your Lord. You always remained your own Lord. You did what you wanted. You have your law going. Maybe based on my law. But it, it takes and it, it, it picks and chooses what it wants to obey in my law. That's your law, not Christ's. This passage, I, I realize the whole gospel is going to come out and smack us in the faith, uh, face and say, look, um, what you've been told by American Christians that you can just believe in Jesus and now just ignore what he said and not live accordingly is a complete lie. It's a different religion. It's not even a Christianity light. It's not Christianity at all. That should terrify you so that you look closely at what Christ is saying with the intent to not get around it in some way, not interpret it differently so you can get what you want out of it, but to actually do it. So that you can stand on that day and you can say, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and inherit the kingdom that the Father has set up for you. I pray that that is true for all of you here this this day. And if any have gone down the wrong road, that they repent today and they go on the right road. If any pastors hear me and you have somehow fallen into that trap of, of well, I'm doing ministry and therefore I'm living for Christ. And yet you're not doing these things in your life. You're not teaching these things as absolute over as people. You're relaxing them you're not going to actually uh, demand that people do them. You're not going to actually do church discipline when people don't do them, which is what Christ is going to talk about later on. If you've fallen into that trap, repent. Today, while you hear his voice through this, don't go any further again. Repent. Lest you be found with the righteousness, not of Christ, but of the Pharisees. Because the righteousness of the Pharisees will not give you access to the kingdom of God. It is only Christ who has access to the kingdom and therefore only those who are in him and show to be in him by their works who will enter in. Let's pray. Father, again, we know this is a heavy passage, Lord, and you require holiness from your people. It is an absurdity that we have come to believe that you no longer require holiness of your people. That somehow because Christ has given us a holiness that we might enter into your presence, that we might have fellowship with you and communion with you, that that somehow means that 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 communion would not affect us in any way. It wouldn't change us in any way. It wouldn't regenerate us in any way. It wouldn't give us life in any way so as we actually have the fruit of life in obedience. Lord, it is an absurdity that we believe Help us, Lord, in this horrible belief. Do away with it in our minds as we go through your word. Help us understand that you have saved us in Jesus Christ. You have justified us in him to not just remain as we are, but instead to actually be conformed to his image because that's why the son has come into the world. That's why he's called Jesus in the first chapters of Matthew. Because he will save his people, not merely from the punishment of sin, but from sin. And we have forgotten that. And we have been deluded by false preachers who tell us otherwise. Father, save us from our sin. Root out any wickedness in us. Give us the love we need to love you, to be salt and pleasing to you in who we are and in our daily lives and our secret lives. And make us light in the world that men might see us, 
through our works and say, that man, that woman, they represent God. Not because we have a position that represents you in some sort of office. Not because we have the right clothing on that makes us look like we're priests because of the robes that we wear and whatnot. Not because we say the longest prayers like the Pharisees did but instead because we do what is right in your eyes no matter what. And we are willing to make ourselves a sacrifice to do so. Oh Lord, put this in us that you might be glorified for all of it. In Jesus' name.